Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Among the most revered Americans today are those who served in our armed forces. This is especially so for those who return from military service disabled from combat. Now, you'd think a grateful nation would do everything possible to make the transition to private life easy for those who sacrificed so much but fall on hard financial times. In fact, however, some federal laws can unintentionally actually discriminate against disabled veterans. Such is the case with a little-known quirk of the personal bankruptcy law we'll discuss today. With us are three members of ABI's Task Force on Veterans Affairs. In addition to their passion for service, they are committed to fixing a clear error that made its way into the 2005 Code Amendments when Congress decided to means test eligibility for Chapter 7 relief. Jay Bender is a partner in the Birmingham, Alabama office of Bradley Arendt Bolt Cummings and a past chair of the firm's bankruptcy practice. He represented Jefferson County in its landmark Chapter 9 case. A fellow in the American College of Bankruptcy, he earned an undergraduate degree with honors from Duke and a law degree with honors from the University of North Carolina. We'll ask him later who he roots for in college basketball. <laughs> uh, Christina Stanger is a member of the commercial litigation practice at Nymaster Good in Des Moines, Iowa. Christine was commissioned as a Medical Service Corps officer in the U.S. Army in 2000 and served in Iraq from 2003 through 2004. She continues to serve as an officer in the Iowa National Guard. She graduated with high honors from Drake University Law School, where she was a member of the Law Review, and was just named to ABI's 40 Under 40 for 2018. John Thompson is a partner in the bankruptcy practice at McGuire Woods here in Washington, D.C. He's also practiced for Cadwallader, Wild Gottschall, and Greenberg Traurig over his legal career. John spent nearly seven years as a captain in the U.S. Army as a decorated aviation officer after college before earning a law degree with honors from American University, where he also earned a master's in international relations. So welcome to you all. Thanks for your service uh, to our nation, and also thanks for your service on the task force and for joining us on ABI Podcasts. Thank you. You bet. So, so first, um, if I can get maybe uh, uh, Christina to explain the problem here. How, did, how does the bankruptcy code, uh, as currently written, discriminating against disabled veterans? So, Sam, you wouldn't think that in our days, as you just reported, that where our, serving our country is an honored profession, that we would have a structural discriminatory treatment of our military and disabled veteran community in our own bankruptcy code. And yet, we certainly do have a problem here. What we think is an unintended consequence of the revisions from 2005, but what we have is that in the definitions section of the code, 101-10A actually mandates that this veteran disability benefits would be included in the calculation of income as veterans seek to trigger the rights and protections of the bankruptcy code. Honestly, as a creditor's rights attorney, when I heard this, I was even outraged. So here we are seeking to achieve some parity between the treatment of our disabled veterans and uh, other disabled members of our country um, in rectifying these definitional issues. 
let's tell, we'll tell you a little bit more about what we mean with that uh, as we go into the podcast here. So explain that further. So the, the disparity is the treatment between medical disability benefits and other benefits uh, to disabled Americans under the Disability Act or the Social Security provisions. Um, is, that, is that what we're talking about here? That's exactly right, Sam. So what you have in the definition section under 10110A um, and through the process in 2005, what, what we had is a narrowing, right, of the bankruptcy code and in its application and in trying to, to reel in some of the di- discretion that judges were using in calculating what um, sort of income went into the means test. And in that process, there were three exemptions included. And one of those, as far as relevant to today's discussion, was the exemption for Social Security disability income. That sort of income for the everyday uh, disabled uh, citizen is not included in the calculation, whereas a disabled veteran's disability benefits, which comes from the government as well, just through the Veterans Administration, is included in the income calculation. And so what you end up with is uh, you may have two individuals, for example, uh, you know, uh, you may have Jay Bender here, who, who's a non-veteran who's receiving Social Security disability income uh, from gout. And at the same time, you have Christina Stanger here, who's a disabled veteran receiving disability income because she has an injury she sustained from an improvised explosive device. Jay would be able to exempt his disability income as he seeks bankruptcy protection. However, because of the revisions in 05, Christina, the disabled veteran, would not be able to exempt those disability payments uh, because they are not specifically listed as an exemption. And so what we have found over, since 2005 is that courts have been hamstrung into actually forcing those veteran, uh, veterans to use and include those disability payments as income as they seek bankruptcy protection and, and try to reset some of these financial hardships that they may be facing. Is it is it possible that... Uh, uh, that Congress intended the definition of current monthly income to operate in a way that treats disabled vets worse than others who are disabled? No, no, Sam, I really, this is John, I really don't think so. Um, you know, there was obviously a public policy intent on the part of Congress to exempt um, a certain income from being calculated for the means test. And and they thought that Social Security disability income was a category that that uh, was should have been qualified as being exempt. We can't imagine that there was a, an intent here on the part of Congress to take some of our most uh, you know honorable citizens who have served their country in uh, uniform uh, and happen to have become disabled as a part of uh, or as a consequence of that service to have their income included. I just don't think that that made any sense from a public policy perspective. Hey, Sam, this is Jay. Uh, yes, sir. You know, to John's point, he and I you know, recently wrote an article along with Elizabeth Gunn that was in the ABI Journal on this issue. And in preparing that, we looked and tried to see if there's anything in the legislative history of FAFSIPA that really addressed why there were these three specific exclusions that were uh, that were made, uh, but no... Uh, similar exclusion for VA disability benefits, and we couldn't find anything. The, the history on that point was very scant, and it, it's hard to think that uh, this was intentional. Uh, 
Now, when you think about the exclusions for Social Security disability benefits, for compensation for victims of war crimes and for uh, compensation for victims of international terrorism, you would think clearly that uh, veterans who were disabled in combat, perhaps uh, as a result of war crimes or as a result of terrorism, um, uh, that their VA disability benefits uh, would have been excluded, but I, you know, we they weren't, and we we clearly think that was an oversight. What about the role of um, judges here? I mean, traditionally, judges have had uh, discretion um, uh, in terms of defining um, key terms that may be uh, am- ambiguous. Do they have? Any equitable power in, in their discretion to, um, you know, to fix uh, what, what seems to be a, a clear error? Are there any court decisions uh, that we can point to? Hey, Sam, uh, this is Jay again. I, I, unfortunately not. Um, they used to. They used to have a good bit of discretion before Pepsi was enacted uh, back before 2005. Uh, the code really left it to a judge's discretion to decide what would be included in a, um, uh, a debtor's uh, disposable income. And uh, income would not be considered disposable if that income was reasonably necessary for the support of the debtor and his or her dependents. And based on that standard, uh, courts, I think, routinely found that VA disability benefits would not be part of disposable income. Again, we looked. Uh, but haven't found any cases prior to 2005, mm-hmm. in which courts found that a VA disability benefits should be should be included in their disposable income. And that, as Christina explained, that changed with Pepsi's amendment. Um, since then, five courts have addressed this issue, and all of them have ruled uh, correctly, unfortunately, based on how the code is currently drafted against the veterans. Uh, and uh, they found that because of Congress's expressed exclusion of only three categories of income, that they did not have any latitude in creating a fourth um, uh, exception. The leading uh, and most recent of those five cases is Judge Fure's 2017 opinion in Henry Bra, which came out of the Eastern District of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. In that case, uh, the Chapter 13 trustee objected to confirmation of the debtors' Chapter 13 plan because the debtors, who included uh, a veteran, did not include uh, VA disability benefits um, in the plan. The debtors argued that their uh, VA disability benefits shouldn't have to be included because those benefits were exempt from the reach of creditors right. under non-bankruptcy law, federal right. federal law. But the court the court rejected that argument and uh, said that uh, they, they uh, that she could not create uh, a, a new exception. Uh, one thing that Judge Fury did in her opinion, which is a great, great opinion, um, is that she, unlike the other courts, specifically addressed the bankruptcy code's disparate treatment of VA disability benefits compared to Social Security disability benefits. And uh, her opinion indicates some real sympathy to the veterans' um, arguments, but you know she she said that that was an exception for uh, Congress to create, right. not for her court. Right. So this is just a plain language interpretation. 
Yeah, and um, um, and thanks to Judge Bureau, you know, she really uh, shone a light, uh, shined a light on the issue. And uh, frankly, I don't know that we'd be here today if it weren't for her opinion, mm-hmm. really uh, highlighting the problem. And if I may add, it's it's really interesting, especially kind of going off of Judge Bureau's opinion, that you know you might note as a creditor that you actually can't access these disability benefits, but for bankruptcy. I mean, they're exempt. And in so far, you know, state law from execution remedies or, or creditors' rights anyway. Mm-hmm. What what's the um, what's the sense of the scope of the problem? Um, I mean, how many disabled veterans are potentially adversely impacted by this legislative oversight? Sam, this is John. I'll I'll try to take that one. Um, I think the the difficulty is. Uh, in knowing exactly how many veterans are are impacted here, but we do know a couple of things, given our experience um, and and the general statistics. Right, there are 4.7 million veterans out there in America, and we know um, that that five and ten military families face financial problems of some sort or another. Um, so while it's difficult to know exactly um, how many are impacted, um, I, I think we feel very certain um, that, the, that the number of potentially impacted uh, veterans and military service members, for that matter, are, are, um, uh, is, is pretty substantial. Um, I'll say this, too. As a former commander uh, in the Army um, and a leader of soldiers, um, I I personally know all too well uh, that that five in ten military families facing financial problems. Now that's a real statistic, right? I mean, when we see terrific soldiers in uniform, we know that 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 dynamic doesn't change after they they leave military service. So it certainly um, would be representative um, of the veterans uh, of the veterans demographic. But we know that a number of things happen when financial problems strike. Right? That that it causes difficulty in the home. It's extraordinarily um, uh, debilitating to morale, um, and sometimes can can impact their capability for uh, obtaining security clearances. Whether they're and many of these people continue to serve um, in capacities after they leave the service as veterans in in uh, jobs that require require uh, um, uh, some kind of security clearance. We know it affects them as, as commanders in uniform, and I'm all you know, I'm altogether certain that it affects them afterwards. I, I know, Christina, you probably have your own um, war stories to talk about families and their dependents as a result of, of financial distress um, while in service, but I, I wonder if you had any thoughts. Yes, I think you really nailed it um, here, John, because not only does it impact security clearances and the morale and readiness of a unit to actually do their mission, but even outside of that, um, if soldiers are thinking about their families and their financial issues, they're not thinking about the safety and, and concern of the folks to the left and right of them. And then beyond service, right? So in my opportunity to serve with the National Guard, I see a lot of um, lifelong service uh, servants of our military, but also then I see their relationships in the communities. And, you know, these statistics are real as far as the embarrassment of seeking, um, right, there's still a stigma there that they aren't able to control their financial issues. And these are, you know, upstanding, outstanding individuals. 
and there's that pride of service. And so knowing that they may have a financial issue and taking that to their command team or taking that to to and asking for help is just not, this isn't really that community that's used to doing that. And, you know, maybe there's a stigma or an embarrassment associated with it. So there's all these other ramifications. I mean, you know, suicide is in the forefront of our headlines these days. And, you know, I'm not naive to think, and I think I don't think our audience is naive to think that certainly financial distress might have a underplay to some of that. You know, and why shouldn't these folks have an opportunity for that fresh start that the rest of our um, citizens do? You know, as you said, I think, John, this is an, um, it's almost like a cancer. It's insidious. It, it, it uh, impacts not only their military readiness, but their families and um, extends into even their civilian and community relationships. Uh, I just wanted to uh, correct one thing. I think John said that there are 4.7 million veterans, and, and that's uh, uh, just the number of veterans who are receiving uh, disability benefits, according to recent VA statistics. I think the total veteran population in the U.S. is around 19 million. And when you think about 4.7 million people receiving VA disability benefits uh, who are confronted with a situation where those benefits are exempt outside of bankruptcy, but will come into play and be on the table if they file. We think that the issue is really huge, uh, and, and uh, again, it's hard to know who is. Uh, how, how do you count the number of people who are deterred from filing? Um, you know, there are no ready statistics on that, but uh, uh, all indications are is it's a significant issue. Sorry, John, go ahead. No, thanks, Jay. I, I, I did mean to say uh, 4.7 million disabled veterans, but I think Sam, the the whole point to all of um, all of the narratives you heard from, from from myself, Christina, and Jay is that while we don't know the number, we're very confident that it is substantial. Right. Right, and so that's some of the issue is when you're you you know when you're talking policy levels and how many of my veterans in my state are impact when we start talking with senators. You know, we can give them really good examples of individuals, but the whole policy thought behind this, it's just outrageous for me to tell an individual, you know, it's actually better for you to be outside of bankruptcy because um, you'll actually be treated worse by our structure and our code. Well, it sounds like from the, um, from certainly the cases uh, that have been decided, including the one from Wisconsin, you mentioned that there's a relatively straightforward legislative fix. Uh, even uh, as difficult as it is to imagine legislative fixes uh, in, in Washington in the same sentence here. But if you will, kind of explain um, the legislation that's uh, that's been introduced um, and bipartisan legislation at that and, and um, uh, a little bit about how that would fix the problem. Uh, I'll be happy to. Um, the bill has not yet been introduced, but it should be in a matter of weeks. Um, and that bill is called the Honoring American Veterans in Extreme Need Act, or the Haven Act. Uh, that bill was drafted by Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, and if and when it's passed, and we think it's going to be when it's passed, it's going to exclude veterans' disability benefits broadly, uh, just like Social Security disability benefits are currently excluded from the uh, disposable income and the current monthly income definitions. The act, while it hasn't been introduced, it already has really, really good bipartisan support. Uh, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, a Republican, 
has agreed to be the lead co-sponsor of the bill, along with Senator Baldwin, a Democrat. And right now, joining them as additional co-sponsors of the bill are Senator Dianne Feinstein, a Democrat from California, Senator Tom Tillis, a Republican out of North Carolina, Senator Patrick Leahy, a Democrat out of Vermont, Senator Johnny Ernst, um, a Republican out of Christina Sanger's home state of Iowa, and Senator Doug Jones, a Democrat out of uh, my home state of Alabama. So we, we expect that in the uh, weeks to come that uh, those ranks are going to be joined by additional co-sponsors from both sides of the aisle. And, um, uh, and we're proud that a, a number of our current co-sponsors uh, sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which will have initial responsibility for the bill since it involves the bankruptcy code. Uh, so uh, the members of the task force are working hard, and we're keeping our fingers crossed that the Haven Act is going to be part of the bankruptcy code in the very near future. What can those who are listening to this uh, podcast do to help turn the Haven Act into law? I think you can help us as practitioners out there if you've come in contact with uh, clients or individuals facing these, this particular dilemma Come and tell us your stories. Um, obviously, if they, if if that those individuals are willing to, although it's uh, uh, difficult for them uh, in in many or most cases uh, to come forward with their individual stories, um, would would love to uh, to to bring them to their their representatives in Congress. But um, but as good, I think, would be to know what those stories are from practitioners on an anecdotal, base, uh, anecdotal basis so that we can share them with policymakers and um, drive this process forward. I think it would also be terrific um, if, uh, if individual lawyers were writing their, um, their elected representatives, right? write your congressman, write your senator to help with this. And, and finally, I think that um, uh, to the extent that Folks have contact with military service organizations or veteran service organizations um, like the the American Legion um, and others. You know, Iraq and Afghanistan uh, Veterans um, uh, Association. That those those particular um, those particular organizations will carry the. Uh, you know, carry that message on and are very effective at doing so uh, and and can be terrific advocates for this cause if if we can get them uh, in support of it. And we are already garnering that support, but those stories coming from practitioners out there in the field um, who are experiencing this firsthand on the part of their clients would be extraordinarily helpful. Yeah, and I want to add to that, John. Um, you highlight a number of our members may be veterans or may have veterans in their family. Um, those veteran service organizations and military service organizations, um, they had been aware of this act, most of them, and they were just waiting kind of for that, um, the tide to turn. And politically now, it, now's the time. We've got some great momentum. Um, as you know, we had help from um, non-veterans, non-bankruptcy practitioners. In fact, you, you know, a lot of us, give a lot of deference to Holly Petraeus, who, who stomped around the hill with us on Monday and Tuesday. I mean, hanging out with some bankruptcy lawyers certainly, you know, maybe wasn't on the top of her list three weeks ago. But um, we were very blessed and fortunate to be able to communicate the reality of the issue. And we have some 
amazing traction and some really hard workers right now looking to put this um, put this forward. And I, I also wanted to emphasize that unlike other, you know, perhaps bankruptcy bills closed in the past, this is really a veterans issue and a veterans bill that's coming forward. And yes, it's something that us as bankruptcy practitioners have an opportunity to impact in our world really, really straightforward fix. So um, look forward to folks helping us or reaching out, giving us your story, or maybe reaching out to those folks that you know that, um, frankly, this could give some hope to where they may have been struggling in the past. And one other thing I would mention is that uh, when people, uh, when they contact their congressmen or VSOs, uh, considering, um, you know, including a copy of the article from the ABI in the November edition last year on this issue that uh, John Thompson, Elizabeth Gunn, and I wrote, it's an easy way to um, give them information, some background, uh, uh, or include the link to this podcast. Right, right. Will do. Well, thank you all, uh, Christina and John and Jay, for uh, joining me. And uh, best of luck in your efforts to get the Haven Act passed uh, as, uh, as soon as possible. If I may, Sam, could I just add one thing of personal privilege? Sure. Christina and I and the rest of our whole committee want to thank Jay Bender, our colleague and friend, um, for really spearheading this effort. Um, he's been a terrific leader, uh, notwithstanding the fact that, uh, that as he often demurs to, to uh, the rest of us who had worn the uniform, he certainly is in service of all of, all of us who have worn the uniform, um, and we thank him for, for his outstanding efforts. I second that motion and would point out, did you see how quickly he he threw out that BSO acronym, John? I think we've made a new converted <laughs> I think we have indeed. A point point well made. Well, we thank, we thank you again, and uh, we also thank our audience for listening. There are more than 200 ABI podcasts on various bankruptcy topics available at our website, abi.org. And you can also s- subscribe uh, to the podcast via the SoundCloud app. So until next time, this is Sam Giordano for the American Bankruptcy Institute saying good day.